Welcome everyone to the American Thoracic Society Breathe Easy podcast. We're excited to present episode one of two in our AI and Sleep podcast series, Artificial Intelligence in Sleep Medicine, the Past, the Present, and the Future. I'm Miranda Tan, Clinical Associate Professor in the Division of Sleep Medicine, Department of Psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Sumit Bhargava, Clinical Professor in the Division of Pulmonary Asthma and Sleep Medicine, Department of Pediatrics at the Stanford University School of Medicine and Director of the Pulmonary Sleep Lab at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. We are delighted to have two renowned experts in the field as our guest speakers today, Dr. Anuja Bandapade and Dr. Kathy Goldstein. Thank you so much for having us. Um, my name is Kathy Goldstein. I'm a professor of neurology at the University of Michigan, and I am entirely in our sleep disorder center where I see a variety of clinical sleep disorders and read polysomnograms. My research interest is primarily around the use of wearables for the monitoring of sleep and collaborating with mathematicians to model sleep and circadian rhythms from that wearable signal. Hi, everyone. This is Anuja Vandipathai. I am an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics at Indiana University. I am a pediatric pulmonologist and sleep physician by training. I am currently the chair of the ASM's AI committee, a committee where, which was earlier chaired by Kathy Goldstein. And I, my personal interest is looking at uh, how we can interpret sleep data to predict adverse cardiovascular events. And I've also had an interest in regulating the use of AI in sleep medicine. Lovely. Thanks again to both of you for being here. Today's episode will focus on the definitions and applications of AI. So let's kick off with our first question. The first question will be to both of our speakers. Why and how is sleep medicine primed for AI? So I can start a little bit about this. So sleep medicine is very, very well positioned to benefit from artificial intelligence. And there's quite a few reasons why. So firstly, as everybody listening knows, um, everybody sleeps. Um, so, and we spend a third of our life sleeping. So this results in a ton of data when we're assessing sleep. And when we think about that clinically, that assessment of sleep is with the overnight polysomnogram, which records electroencephalogram, electromyogram, oximetry, EKG, airflow, respiratory effort. Or when we're thinking more from a research standpoint or public health standpoint, wearables, which is tracking our sleep on a nightly basis. But either way, there's the acquisition of a very large amount of data. And additionally, that data is really complex. It's not just square waveforms. It's very complicated signals. There's a lot of both inter and intra individual heterogeneity and variability. So this really requires advanced analytics. Um, the wonderful thing about PSG data that makes it really, really well-primed for neural net analysis, for example, is there's a lot of spatial and temporal relationships within the PSG. Now, when we go a step further, 
as part of the clinical process. So when we do an overnight sleep study on somebody and the doctor interprets it the next day, we're not just looking at that raw data um, cold. It is first labeled by our PSG technicians. So what that means is that we end up, for clinical purposes, collecting a massive amount of data with annotations. So signal and then the correct answer to what that collection of signal is. And that's really, really well-suited for machine learning analysis. Additionally, it's really laborious to analyze all this data, as you can imagine. So AI could be beneficial just due to the fact that automation could help us with our day-to-day -day work. Sleep variables are really interrelated. So they have a lot of collinearity with one another. And so it's difficult to analyze them more than one or a few at a time unless you have flexible models. And that's another way that artificial intelligence can help us. And then moving away from just kind of these data concerns, when we think about sleep disorders in general, they're really poorly phenotyped and they're really not endotyped at all. We don't know the underlying causes of many of them. And so we get it just gestalt in clinic or when we're reading sleep studies that there's different subgroups, but these haven't really been described very well. And so unsupervised learning is something that's going to help us reveal these different patterns, novel clusters, so we can better understand sleep disorders and how to best appropriately treat our patients in a more precise manner. And then when we think about treatment, um, sleep again, we talked about it being a nightly phenomena. So it's not a one-time treatment. It's not chemotherapy or one medication. We have dynamic interventions that changed based on sleep the night before. So we really need a way to deploy those interventions that's patient-specific based on real-time data and can be automated because you don't have a physician in your bedroom every day. So I think that's another great way that artificial intelligence can help. That's very well put, Kathy. I think you did an amazing job of summarizing just how well-primed we are as sleep physicians. So I'll probably take a different approach and I'm going to tell you um, how is it that we are not using as much AI as we should in the pediatric world. So. Pediatric, again, uh, whatever you've told all about the sleep studies, of course, it holds true even for pediatric. Uh, of course, we are doing all these sleep studies and especially compared to the adults where there's been a push towards home sleep study in the pediatric world. We know that pediatric polysomnogram in the lab is still the gold standard. So, of course, we are collecting all these millions and millions of data points. Now, traditionally, what has happened is uh, if you compare how artificial intelligence has evolved over the past, say, five or ten years, what really changed was the ability for the machine algorithms to learn and relearn by itself. So in the olden days, whenever we would have these machine learning algorithms simply just going rule-based, then it was really difficult for us to apply AI in pediatric world. Simply given the physiology of a child, a child who is breathing 60 times a minute, an infant who is breathing 60 times a minute versus you have a teenager who's breathing maybe 12 or 14 times a minute. Obviously, the flow parameters are going to be different. It's not typically your 10 seconds rule for an apnea. Instead, it's two breaths, and that two breaths can be very different. It can look very different in these uh, different age groups. 
uh, along with that, not just the respiratory rate, if you look at the brain waves. So you have the infant growing up, and as the infant gets older, you have K-complexes, sleep spindles, all coming in at different ages of life. And that's always been the challenge that in the pediatric world, you can't really, it's not one size fits all. So for that reason, we needed algorithms which were way more advanced, which were not available, say, 10 years back. But when you think of it, the way artificial intelligence has evolved and we have newer technology where you know, the machine is learning on the go, learning through examples, learning by itself, that has really positioned it in a very suitable way where it can help answer some of the questions that we've always had about pediatric sleep disorders. And I think then that's why it's it's prime time that uh, we should be using this more. And um, my hope is in the next couple of years, we are going to see more and more of AI being used in the pediatric world. Um, Anuja, thanks for really illustrating how sleep is on a continuum. Um, you know, Kathy mentioned earlier uh, about unsupervised learning and automation, how we can leverage that. Do you uh, have any um, examples or ideas of how we can use AI and better understand pediatrics as they evolve into adults? Yeah, so there have, of course, been a couple of studies, not as much as in the adult world, uh, where they have used uh, these technologies. Uh, let's let's take a step back before that. How about let's let's just go over like what do I mean by the supervised learning and uh, unsupervised learning? So supervised learning is more of when you have it's rule based. You you're you're really uh, telling the machine that this is what it should look like, and unsupervised is where you're not giving those parameters to start with. So unsupervised learning works more with cluster analysis with pattern recognition. And uh, that's possibly, I think, what has really helped dip uh, towards the direction of where we can use AI more within medicine in general. So when we talk about how can we use such technology in for sleep breathing uh, or even just any sleep disorders, there have been some studies which have looked at, for instance, and this is just one example, that uh, when you look at uh, the chat data that we know where they did sleep studies on many hundreds of kids who ended up having surgery versus another cohort who did not. Uh, there was a recent study which came out which showed that they went and analyzed the sleep studies. And of course, they have the outcome data for that. And they saw which of these patients actually ben would have benefited from surgery. They could predict that based on the baseline polysomnogram, which was performed even before the surgery. So I think these are the kind of studies which I would uh, say are things which help us get a better understanding and get good use. Uh, and it was only, it. I think all of that can only happen because of these cluster uh, and pattern recognition and cluster analysis. So thanks for that, um, bringing clarity to and, and the distinction between, I guess, analysis and application. I think, uh, you know, from my perspective as a pediatric sleep medicine doctor, uh, there is very much a lack of outcome data in pediatrics with regard to the data that is collected and what it actually means for the child. Uh, I think what has become clear over the past few uh, decades of research in pediatric sleep is that there are a certain frequency of number of events that are clearly abnormal and that if, in fact, this disease remains untreated, it has significant effects 
on growth and development, as well as neurocognitive uh, achievement in the future. Uh, from your perspective, out of these two, I guess, ways in which artificial intelligence can be applied, which is one, the cluster analysis, the recognition of patterns, and the other, uh, as Dr. Goldstein had alluded to, uh, bringing clarity to the endotypes and phenotypes of particular kinds of patients. How do you feel uh, that this can actually come about in pediatrics? Yeah, hitting the nail right on the head, right at the start. So this, um, yeah, it's an excellent point. And we have struggled as pediatric pulmonary history people. You uh, will obviously empathize with that. We have always struggled with the lack of data. Uh, we have always uh, struggled with not having a, like a, a database which we can share across geographical and, and whatnot borders. And that's, and obviously it's been a struggle trying to explain that Sleep apnea is equally harmful for a child as it is in an adult. And that's because we don't really have those concrete. We don't have stroke rates. We don't have myocardial infarction rates. So we don't really have those big things which can show. But yes, we do have uh, changes in the cognitive score. We do have changes in behavior. We do have changes in blood pressure. So we have these subtle signs, but we just don't have the ability to capture all of that across the uh, larger databases and and that's that's always been a struggle so with the ability to mine millions and millions of data and doing it in a form where we can share it across institute like, like for instance institutional databases i think that would really help create a platform where we can come up with all these clinical based guidelines so i uh, I mentioned cluster analysis and all of those, but there are actually many other. There are probably, I would say, like tens and hundreds of different methods that can be used. Because ultimately, artificial intelligence, it's an amalgamation of mathematics, Arab statistics, language, all of that together. So it's just using all these advanced tools and just knowing when to appropriately use that. And that. It's obviously the adults have definitely done a great job of trying to get all of that together and trying to create all these different data sets. Like, for instance, if you go to the NSSR website, you will see there are all these existing data sets which have all these outcome measures. Sadly, pediatric is not that well represented only because we don't we don't have as many trials as the adults have done. But if, if we can get to the point where we have as many data points there, uh, I'm sure we can use quite a few advanced models to help analyze those. Well, on the adult side, as you said, uh, Anuja, we, we have a lot of data, but how are these AI algorithms trained? Like, do we know if the data that we currently have is reliable and accurate? Well, there's a lot of considerations. Um, and I did want to comment on one thing in regards to the pediatrics. One of the things that we don't talk about enough is, so with PSG, you know, I talked about we're recording all of these electrophysiological signals, right? And now it's digitized, but back in the day, long before Anuja's training and even long before my training, it used to be on paper. And um, the, pa the way the paper came out, it was in 30 seconds a page. And that's where sleep staging comes from. Right. That's why we take 30 second intervals and say, 
non-REM1, non-REM2, non-REM3, REM because of the paper speed. And then we've retained that in the digital world, even though it's kind of an outdated way to conceptualize sleep. And we lose a ton of data by doing this, right? So first we categorize things, then we sum them up. And so we end up with all these quantities like total sleep time, apnea, hypopnea index, oxygen, nadir. And for both adults and also in you know, the pediatric state where we're really lacking data on outcomes, um, we're really just throwing data away that could give us so much insight. All of that EEG data in kids, that has to have some value in predicting the neurocognitive outcomes from obstructive sleep apnea in the pediatric state. And, you know, I think that that's one of the most exciting things about artificial intelligence in our field. Um, as far as how well these algorithms work, um, for, you know, it, it matters what use case you're looking at. For AI-based sleep staging, they work awesome. And actually, some of the newer papers on this topic have really highlighted the fact that they've reached a plateau because there's a there's a ceiling in how good humans are in staging sleep um, from PSG signal. Agreement is around 80% at best. And so the algorithm obviously is hitting that. And, you know, because the humans are our gold standard, we're kind of saturated at how well we can do. And things are, that are really important when we're looking at these training data sets is making sure the purpose of the algorithm matches the training data set. So if you want to develop a machine learning algorithm to detect obstructive sleep apnea, you do not want to train it on a bunch of heart failure patients who only have central sleep apnea, right? Um, edge cases do need to be included. These algorithms, anyone who knows sleep, who reads sleep studies knows we have a ton of artifacts. So we need to know how these algorithms are going to react to artifacts. Um, these are all really important considerations. And something to keep in mind as well, particularly as we're all going to be approached by manufacturers who are selling their AI sleep staging software, is that these algorithms need to be tested and not only tested on holdout data from the data set that the algorithm was trained on, but also completely independent data sets from different labs, with different acquisition methods, with different patient populations. So we know that those algorithms are robust and generalizable because just by the name machine learning, these algorithms learn from data. So they're going to perform well on the data or similar data that they were trained on. And that's something really important that we need to keep in mind, you know, before we start jumping to these really glamorous applications, you know, is that we're thinking about how these algorithms are developed so thank you for bringing that up, Dr. Goldstein. I think um, one of the things that I think the listeners of our podcast will benefit from is some clarity about the how the different terms of things such as machine learning, artificial intelligence, deep learning, how these are kind of interrelated and yet still very distinct. Would you um, show shed some light on how these terms can be used interchangeably, but they actually mean very different things. Yeah, so artificial intelligence is a very, very broad term, and it's considered the science of computers performing tasks that are typically thought 
to require human intelligence. So that encompasses a lot of things and has been around since the 1950s. Machine learning is actually a subset of AI where you're using algorithms that learn from the data um, to either predict something, classify something, or perform a task. But they're learning from the data without direct programming commands. However, the features, so like what we call in traditional statistics, the covariates, those are defined by humans when we talk about just general machine learning. So deep learning goes a step further where the algorithms also define the features. And that's how these things differ a bit. And I'll also let Anuja step in and provide some clarity here as well. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. I'll take up uh, defining natural language processing, which right now is super popular. Uh, so natural language processing, that's also another form under that broad umbrella of artificial intelligence, is essentially an intersection between computer science, um, artificial intelligence, and linguistics. It's the branch of science, IA or AI, that helps machines understand and respond to text or voice data. So obviously, uh, the um, technology has advanced way more than in the past where you would just have these robots uh, coming in with their same monotonic voice and saying things where you can distinctly say, okay, yes, this is a robot. Uh, natural language processing is what helps with this whole generative AI where you go online and the chatbot comes and talks to you like it's your best friend. And then you go and um, you uh, go to ChatGPT and then they are churning out um, clinical notes for you uh, better than you. And then you have all these, like Miranda, you were talking about the study that was published where they compared how uh, physicians explain uh, terminology uh, versus how uh, you have a chat GPT explaining terminology and how the patients feel it's more empathetic and uh, it's more informative. Obviously, the chat GPT is doing what like the, uh, it would take me 10 minutes to write. The chat GPT is probably coming up with that in, in a couple of seconds uh, using all these advanced terms. So um, in a way, of course, it's very popular, uh, but we definitely have to take it with a grain of salt because at the end of the day, it's also part of the uh, algorithm. It, it also has the ability of giving you wrong information. And I always treat artificial intelligence as, as a tool, right? And it's like you're training a medical student. So you're not really going to train the medical student within the day by showing them one example of one patient and you don't finish your residency in that day, right? It takes you a couple of years of experience, a couple of years of learning, a couple of years of testing. So that's, that's essentially what artificial intelligence was made to be. That's how it was supposed to be. Um, and as long as we are using it that way, it's a great tool. And uh, yeah, and you'll have more and more terminologies crop up. Uh, but at, for the most part, I think these were the broad uh, categories that we used. Thanks for uh, providing the overview of ML techniques. Even though we will review AI cases in detail in episode two, would you be able to provide some brief examples of how the machine learning techniques are applied in sleep medicine today? So I can start. Um, I think for all sleep disorders, the most immediate application that we're going to see in the very near future is the machine learning staging of sleep and scoring of respiratory events and movements on polysomnogram and home sleep testing. Um, also, you know, and this could benefit any sleep disorder or just sleep in general, 
is we talked about that quantification and that loss of data in our current processing practices with PSG. So I really think that machine learning analysis of the signals recorded during PSG is going to extract novel electrophysiological biomarkers. So we're already seeing some in the literature from the EEG, like brain age. And that's really, really exciting because so many people undergo polysomnogram, usually for the evaluation of obstructive sleep apnea. And instead of just giving them an apnea hypopnea index, total sleep time, arousals, we could really, really give them some in-depth information in regards to their cognitive trajectory. Um, for obstructive sleep apnea, another big one that we're looking at is not just diagnosing it, but endotyping it. So using machine learning to analyze the signals that are already being recorded by PSG, but to help us understand what's actually causing the sleep apnea so we can predict what treatment is best for our patients. That's very interesting. And thank you for sharing that because it just makes me think about the fact that, especially with regard to pediatrics, the way that the effects of obstructive sleep apnea on the developing brains of children in contrast to the reasonably developed brains of adults has been to characterize changes in neurotransmitters measured by using fMRI or by essentially utilizing these global tools, which is administering some kind of a written uh, neurocognitive test. And I think part of the issue has been, as Dr. Anuja brought up, is characterizing the severity of the injury when it happens and what can be done about it. And so it seems that by moving away from the traditional 30-second way of staging sleep and actually being able to focus and sleep perhaps on a second-to-second -second basis, we might be able to characterize new patterns of injury. So it would be helpful to our listeners to get your perspective on that, uh, Anuja. So, Samit, what Kathy and you said, I completely and wholeheartedly agree with that. So when we think about the uh, traditionally, like for someone who's reading, say, infant studies, right? We obviously get to see this whole spectrum of how the brain wave has changed over the period of a person's uh, a pediatric patient's life. And there are times where I'm seeing an infant with a lot of periodic breathing. I'm seeing all these central pauses. I can't necessarily score it because the scoring manual goes by that traditional 30-second rule. But if there was a way where we could identify these patterns and we can then match it up to the neurocognitive outcomes, obviously it's going to be beneficial to everybody. It's going to help us uh, diagnose, predict, uh, and even treat things way before uh, they become so uh, harmful that they actually cause more adverse effects. So this ability to um, identify these subtle signs is something which my artificial intelligence definitely can help us with. For in terms of what is currently being done, I I, I would say I'm hopeful. I'm, I've definitely seen there has been a lot of data which are exploring some of the existing data sets. For instance, the chat data set again that I talked about. You have some of these outcome measures where you have like the different like corner scale ratings and all these other scale ratings which are helpful, but what we need right now is more of more data sets like these, where you will have all these subtle outcome measures, which traditionally we, we don't collect. 
for instance, I was trying to do something in, in my own institute and we were trying to see if we can look at how can we predict ADHD with the help of polysomnograms. And uh, it's it's just so hard trying to mine all that data and get all the ADHD or how are we going to use, what scales are we going to use. So when we when we try to use this technology, I think it's it's important for us to agree to set uh, some para parameters. Like these are the things that we need to collect, these outcome measures. And the better we get at it, I think the better it will be for pediatrics. That's very interesting because it then suggests that perhaps we can move away from this uh, measure of uh, obstructive um, or apnea hypopnea index to something like an injury index, with the injury actually being measured in the things that matter to most people, which is how bad is this going to make my life and what will it do to my growing child? So thank you for providing that perspective. I know we've been focused very much on obstructive sleep apnea because, you know, we are sleep medicine doctors and that's what we kind of deal with. But when you think about the application of this kind of uh, ability to analyze huge amounts of data in very small fractions of time, what does that actually mean for things like insomnia, circadian rhythm disorders, movement disorders, or issues uh, that patients can have such as idiopathic hypersomnia or narcolepsy. So if you could shed some light on that, we would be grateful. So moving away from obstructive sleep apnea, one of the most exciting developments using artificial intelligence in sleep has been in narcolepsy. And this is one of the Sentinel AI papers that has come out in our field. And what this group of investigators did is they used deep learning to stage polysomnogram in individuals with narcolepsy and controls. And so as most of the listeners know, the way we diagnose narcolepsy now or confirm our clinical suspicion of narcolepsy is to have someone undergo an overnight PSG followed by a next day nap test or multiple sleep latency test. And this combination of studies is to both quantify the amount of time it takes for these individuals to fall asleep, because that's obviously shortened in patients with narcolepsy, and also to look for sleep onset REM or REM sleep occurring within 15 minutes. And the test is labor intensive. It takes more than 24 hours. The test retest reliability is poor. The test is sensitive to sleep loss, circadian disruption, medications. So a lot of times it doesn't easily help us achieve what we want in diagnosing our patients so we can begin treatment. So these individuals, they stage the sleep studies in the narcoleptic patients and controls using deep learning, but instead of using a discrete sleep stage for each of those 30-second epochs, they retained the probability of sleep stage and used that to generate what they call a hypnodensity graph, which shows the probability of each sleep stage over the course of the night. And just visually assessing those, you could see massive differences between normal controls and individuals with narcolepsy. And of course, they were the things that we would all expect. So for example, quicker onset of sleep, quicker onset of stage REM sleep, greater sleep fragmentation and wake time in patients with narcolepsy. But what was really stunning was the ambiguity in sleep stages in the patients with narcolepsy. 
So the algorithm was many times uncertain about whether something was wake and one and two REM. And that is something that we visually see, see when we're staging sleep in patients with narcolepsy, but we really don't have a mechanism to really quantify that. And taking those hypnodensity graphs, that visual de depiction of sleep stage evolution over the course of the night, they quantified metrics that demonstrated sleep state ambiguity and used that to predict narcolepsy with a very, very high level of certainty. And so this is a great use case, not only to detect narcolepsy overnight as opposed to overnight and with an MSLT, but for us to really understand those complex dynamics of sleep over the course of the night that aren't captured with traditional sleep staging. You know, that's simply amazing. I think we would all be grateful to move away from lumbar puncture as a diagnostic test for narcolepsy. Uh, uh so switching tracks a little bit, we talked about narcolepsy, we talked about sleep apnea. The other big thing is insomnia, uh, which clearly is a worldwide disorder that affects both pediatrics and adults. Um, so any insights or, or sharing your perspective on insomnia in both children and adults and how, how the currently available tools or the future tools can kind of make an impact on this worldwide problem would be really helpful to our audience. So I can speak a little bit to that. So in terms of insomnia, if we look at what's being done, obviously, uh, we are learning a lot that not all insomnia patients are similar. And we are learning that there are obviously some differences in your brain waves for, in, for patients with insomnia. And it can vary. And you can have different phenotypes of insomnia patients as well. And you can predict that actually from PSG data. So there, those are some of the examples, but I think what I found more unique, obviously being a pediatrician, is that the use of natural language processing to uh, find out and to determine whether the patient has insomnia or not, or sleep deprivation or not. So, uh, of course, we know that uh, teen years are really hard. You're obviously not getting enough sleep. Sleep isn't your priority. Uh, but researchers, actually, there's the study that uh, found out through social media data usage. And uh, so what they did was they had these bunch of uh, teenagers wearing uh, their sleep tracking devices and then followed them on social media and uh, making them do some weekly surveys. But with the help of natural language processing, what they did was they looked at their social media usage and then they determined uh, how sleep deprived these students were and that turned out to be accurate uh, based on the data that you got from sleep tracking. So obviously, this is an example of how you can use these unique technology. And the more we can use it on, the more larger population we can use it on that can inform different policies. Like if, if we, for instance, this study, if we can extrapolate that data, and then we can see how late start, which as a sleep physician, we've, we've talked a lot about school start times, uh, we can, with the help of such advanced tools, we can collect more data and that can inform policies on these uh, important topics on sleep health. So this, I think, is a great example of how we can combine uh, AI and use that uh, for policymaking as well. I think something really important in regards to insomnia is 
We know the standard of practice, even the American College of Physicians has come out and said this, for treatment of insomnia is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And that's best delivered by somebody in behavioral sleep medicine. And there is an absolute deficiency of the number of these individuals. And many sleep clinics don't have access to them at all. So I think that something exciting that AI can offer our patients with insomnia is something called just-in-time adaptive interventions um, based on their wearable data or app-reported sleep. Because in that context, we not only get kind of this digital CBTI therapist, but the CBTI is going to be and the interventions are going to be delivered in near real time based on the sleep the night before, not based on analysis of four weeks of sleep diary data that the patient had to wait to bring in to their therapist. So I think that's really exciting too. And that's a, that is a lot of care delivery ramifications. And we always want to make sure that we do get care out to our most vulnerable patients that might not have access to these behavioral practitioners. And I think that's something exciting that AI can offer for insomnia. It sounds like the, uh, AI algorithms to date have been pretty successful. And you now mentioned this insomnia example. Do you see any obstacles or barriers uh, into AI becoming more mainstream in the practice of sleep medicine? There's unfortunately a lot. Um, I'm going to let Anuja speak to the regulatory aspects because she's done a lot of hard work on that. Obviously, there's still a lot of fear. There are concerns that we're making decisions based on data that is not necessarily accurate, particularly if you're looking at wearable data. Um, there's also a lot of logistical implementation issues that we don't think about. Uh, big academic centers, it's, it's really hard to get things interfaced with our own computing environments, and that puts up a big barrier. The lack of understandability surrounding AI we really want to work on making AI understandable to clinicians. And, you know, we need to know, you know, we're not going to be able, you can't take an AI algorithm, typically just practice with it. But we do want to know what features are being included. What kind of population was this algorithm trained on? What was it tested on? And Duke has something really beautiful called model facts, which is kind of a copy of the drug facts that you would see on the back of like an over-the-counter medication that really gives as much insight as possible in an understandable way to physicians that are using an artificial intelligence healthcare product. Um, and I'll let Anuja speak to some of the regulatory issues related to um, bringing machine learning into our clinical care. Thanks, Kathy. And um, honestly, I wish it was as simple as us setting like a peach palm board questions, right? I wish it was as simple as that. Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, and there are some basic challenges that we encounter, in which I think like any new tool, you would encounter that. One of the things and one of the main issues have been that as these different industry researchers start building their own algorithm, it wasn't really something which was very seamless across the board, right? So you have all these different companies are forming all these or algorithms from different data sets. But for as a consumer, you don't really know what that data set has been tested on. You don't know how much that has been tested and what, what you really, it's a, it's a black box. And that's what was obviously very intimidating 
as a as a clinician for me to use such a tool, right? Because as physicians, we that's what we are trained on. We we want to know what the data is. We want to know how this has been trained. What are the rules it's following? So that I think has been the foremost challenge, and it it comes from the fact that we don't really talk to the researchers or the industry while they are forming these algorithms. So one uh, so one of the challenges is that not all of them. Uh, really disclose all these informations on like what kind of patients did they uh, test this on or train this model on. They don't talk about what comorbidities did they have. They don't talk about was uh, did they test this uh, algorithm on a separate data set or what even the performance metrics that all these different algorithm builders are using, they, they are not similar. So the FDA, of course, comes in there and it's been tremendous in terms of uh, keeping up with this changing landscape of technology. And uh, they have some measures in place, but some of these are very field specific. And when we say field specific, it, we, I mean that some of these, we will of course have, like we would want to know a few more things, which uh, is more than just like the FDA definitely ensures that these devices are safe and they are ready to be used. But in terms of the clinical effectiveness, I think that's where the different societies need to take ownership and they need to come up with some regulatory measures where for your specific field, whatever AI-enabled algorithm you're using, you have a benchmark and you can test against that. So the second, I think, issue with any kind of validation of these data sets is uh, that sometimes you can have, so. When you're training some a uh, uh, model on a particular data set, and the model obviously knows that in and out, knows all that data, and then if you're testing the model on that same data, then there's overfitting, right? You're you're falsely going to get a great result because the algorithm already knows that data. So in order for it to be generalizable, you really want to test it in something which the model hasn't seen before. So that is another aspect. So I think that all of this can be circumvented if we start talking right at the inception of when you're building that algorithm, if you have the key stakeholders together in place, if we have predefined data form sets that this is what you need to submit, this is what you need to talk about, then there's going to be more transparency. So this transparency is some, it's an initiative which is happening, I would say, with like across uh, like all through the industry, the transparency is going through, like FDA is interested in transparency of data. And of course, all of the societies are, but of course it's going to take some time. Uh, but those would be some of the big challenges in terms of validating. Now, in terms of implementation, which Kathy spoke about, now using an AI algorithm, it's, it's, it's really not that easy. You have to fit that into your clinical workflow. You have to have people who are knowledgeable in that. You have to have a lot of financial uh, resources in place so that you can explain that model. You can use that model. And it may always not be the right fit for you. It may not be a right fit for your clinical practice. So before you invest all that time and effort into bringing an AI algorithm within your clinical model, you need to analyze and see whether this is something which is actually going to add value to care or not. Uh, we just assume that it's AI, so of course it's going to be magical, it's going to help us do a lot of things and make us all great. But that's not always the case. So 
the challenges of implementing AI is also something that we don't talk about enough, uh, but, but that's something which we need to be very aware of. So thank you for bringing up these great points, Dr. Anuja. And I think uh, as I was listening to you speak, there were two things that kind of occurred to me. One thing that both you and Dr. Goldstein mentioned was the fact that it's important for there to be some kind of a framework in which practitioners or organizations can think about the application of artificial intelligence. And I think uh, we have all been aware, perhaps more so in recent years, about the inequity of medical care when it comes to diagnosis, management, and treatment of disease in this country and worldwide. So I think um, it would be appropriate, I think, for us to touch upon at least your perspective uh, as people involved in the field on how you think an equitable framework can be developed to apply this new methodology in the diagnosis, treatment, and management of chronic disease uh, in every population. Yeah, this is probably one of the most important things to highlight. Um, so, you know, when we think about minority populations, that's the definition of minority. There's a smaller prevalence. So these individuals are going to be underrepresented in training data sets, um, giving the possibility that the algorithms derived from those data sets aren't going to work well in those groups. And it's not just the fact that these are populations that are smaller in number, but when you look at where these algorithms come from, where do they come from? They come from large academic centers, right? So they include people with access to healthcare people with the opportunity and interest in participating in research. And so we're really looking at data sets that might not represent our world as a whole, which is a problem. The other difficulty is, so artificial intelligence is so valuable because of the massive amount of data, right? And how is a lot of that data collected? With devices that are unavailable to people of lower socioeconomic classes, or devices that might not work as well in individuals with dark skin. So we know that pulse oximeters, um, wrist-worn photoplasmography, which is that light on the back of your wearable, are inaccurate in people with dark skin color. So what does that mean? The, the direct measures are inaccurate. The derived measures are inaccurate. The algorithms that are adapted to data from those devices are potentially inaccurate. And interventions based on that data are inaccurate. And so... While a physician can, you know, be biased or harm a few people, this algorithm can scale to millions. So this is something we really, really need to be careful about. And we really need to ensure our data collection methods work on all types of people. And we're getting everybody the access they need to research and enriching these data sets so that they, that derived algorithms can work in all types of individuals, particularly the people who need it the most. So following up on that uh, perspective, uh, Dr. Goldstein, this is a question for, for you, Anuja. In pediatric sleep medicine, um, it's very clear that there are special populations consisting of people with congenital disease or with cerebral palsy or with comorbid conditions such as genetic and craniofacial syndromes and neuromuscular disease in which uh, sleep apnea and other sleep-related disorders are especially prevalent. When you think about the application of artificial intelligence, we have essentially been talking about 
data points that are collected from normative or normal or neurotypical populations. How do you think that this can actually be applied to the special populations in pediatrics that are especially in need of early diagnosis and uh, early treatment? All right, so you are absolutely right that when you say that there are these vulnerable populations, and if you look at like traditionally what the research has been on these cohorts, you've always seen like a sample size of maybe 20, 30 kids of, of one such population, and, and you have this retrospective study on this a patient, and, and this is how it was done. And it's, it's really hard to make clinical evidence-based guidelines based on such small sample size. So there's more power in numbers. So if there was a way where we can have a seamlessly sharing database for these vulnerable populations, it's going to be tremendously helpful to give personalized treatment for them. So having this, this these tools help us with that would be incredibly beneficial. The second thing about uh, pediatrics is uh, that whenever we are collecting data, we also have to uh, administer care, access to care for these patients. So one of the things that we have thought about is with new technology, we are going to increase access to care by uh, telemedicine, by doing all of these different fun things where we can track their sleep. But if you're going to do that, it's easier doing it on an adult who can obviously speak for themselves or make their own decisions. For pediatrics, it comes via the parents and sometimes a caregiver if the parent is not there in the picture. So that automatically creates a larger divide. So having a, serving a pediatric population and trying to increase access to their care, for instance, I uh, practice in the state of Indiana. Uh, some of my patients, they come from three or four hour distance to see me. And I'm one, so with, with that, if the parent is not able to, for instance, log into my visit that day, uh, that, that patient is getting deprived of that care. So we have to remember, so whenever we are doing pediatrics, we have to have that extra voice um, in the head. We have to have that extra, uh, um, some, some other system in place where we, where it's not, where we, we can make it easy for the family to, to provide that data, to get that care. And I think there are definitely um, innovative ways, there are creative ways we can use artificial intelligence to help with that and bridge that gap. Thanks for providing that uh, perspective, uh, perspective, uh, Noja, because I think that, as you mentioned about lack of access to care, not just in pediatrics, but also uh, in large populations throughout the United States, uh, where, in fact, people in rural areas do not have access to the specialized tools that we routinely use as sleep medicine physicians for the diagnosis and uh, treatment and management of disease. It appears that this perhaps might be one unique application of artificial intelligence, which actually takes healthcare to the people who need it the most. And they do not, in fact, have to travel long distances or find specialists in far-flung locations to help them. Um, I think this is a great spot to finish our first episode. In our second episode, we will actually build and expand upon what we discussed and talk about use case scenarios in the real world as to how the uh, sleep medicine physician out there in the United States and in the world can utilize this revolutionary technology for the benefit of their patients and their practices. I want to thank uh, Dr. Kathy Goldstein and Dr. Anuja Bandapatyai for joining us today and stay tuned for episode two. Thank you so much for participating.